It's very difficult to come up with a golden bridge for Putin that can in any way salvage his reputation with the Russian people. It is the week of March 21st, and welcome to episode 124 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Carmen Medina, NSI Advisory Board member and former Deputy Director of Intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency. Rob Walker, visiting NSI Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security Experts Group. Megan Stiefel, founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is entering its fourth week. The resistance of the Ukrainian people has been both amazing and inspiring. Global opposition to Russia appears to be resolute. Nevertheless, the Russian aggression persists with Ukrainian civilians increasingly at risk from Russia's terror tactics. The humanitarian crisis may be just beginning. There are now over three and a half million refugees and six and a half million internally displaced Ukrainians. This is Syria level destruction in just four weeks instead of 10 years. So, Carmen, I want to go to you first. How do you think the war is going for Russia today? Do you think Vladimir Putin is considering revising his goals or even looking for a way out? Thanks, Lester. I don't think the war is not going according to plan. No wars go according to plan. But I think a real indicator of how off the rails it is in terms of their plan is that they've had, what, five or six flag officers have been killed in about a month and they continue to be killed. I think there was another report this weekend. Uh, The death of the flag officers may not just be a coincidence or extreme leading from the front, but may reflect some of the flaws in what they're doing. Um, I understand that they invested a lot of money in a modern communication system that has failed, modern secure communication system that has failed either because it wasn't built well or because They've taken down the 3G, 4G towers that supposedly the system works on. I don't know the truth, but this is forcing a lot of people to use clear comms and is allowing the Ukrainians to use, I think, a combination of very clever targeting techniques and drones that they apparently incorporated into their military after a group of amateur Ukrainian drone enthusiasts persuaded them of how useful it could be that can drop, you know, three to five kilogram explosives on a precise target. And that's enough to kill somebody. So too much detail. I think the war is not going well. There's some indication that the concentration of the siege on Mariupol and then the other uh, town uh, may indicate that they're trying to kind of carve off an expanded section of eastern Ukraine in, in case that ends up being all they can get. Uh, I don't know how believable that is. Uh, I so Will Putin change his mind? Well, I'm always fascinated by Putin because his date of birth is one day different from mine. October 7th. I'm October 8th, two years apart, three years apart, I think. And I, you know, the classic definition of a Libra is someone who seeks balance and can be a little wishy-washy. Now, Putin has never shown any signs of that whatsoever. I, uh, I think the only thing really that would make him turn around uh, a real about face would be significant uh, disaffection from his supporters. Like, I wonder, none of this is good for the Russian mafia. None of this 
is good for the Russian mafia. They're making no money. They're probably seriously in deficit now. So if you see him changing his mind, I think it's also an indicator of serious internal dissent. Rob, let's uh, let's turn to the Ukrainian side. What's your take on how Ukraine is seeing the battle so far? I noticed over the weekend that uh, President Zelensky has called for Russia to negotiate uh, for real. Uh, presumably the previous negotiations were were unreal, and that seems accurate. Um, what, what is it? What does that say to you about how he's viewing the fight? It tells me that defense has an advantage here um, and that it's going remarkably better than even the Ukrainians, I think, expected. Uh, And a few evidence, you know, a few points of evidence for that. They are repelling continued assaults into the capital city over and over again. And that's just absolutely incredible, given how many forces it's the it's the Russian main effort right now. And they're continuing to keep uh, that main effort attack out of the out of the capital city. Um, The Ukrainians have, you know, so much decided advantage because they know the terrain. Uh, they know they are fighting for their very lives, their very country's identity. Um, so, you know, Putin has drastically underestimated the resolve and the fighting capability of a people who want to be free and want to uh, to live under their own their own flag and their own lifestyles. Um, so I, I think that the Ukrainians are, are taking it as a moment of, you know, excitement and, and, um, and national pride that in certain areas of the conflict, they are able to in fact, mount counteroffensives and take back a little bit of territory that the the Russians have achieved uh, in the past three weeks. But what does it mean, though? For it, it, clearly, we we know the original negotiations were were not real. I mean, the 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 demands from the Russian side were strictly, you know, in Putin's mind, uh, would they ever come true? I mean, he openly said he's trying to denazify the country. What does that even mean? Uh, when you have a country that's moving hard tack towards democracy and Eastern or Western European values, um, and he's trying to come in and denazify this nation, it makes no sense at all. Um, <clears throat> but what I think it does indicate is that the leverage, the, the bargaining power for Ukraine has shifted. Uh, as Carmen mentioned, you know, six to seven flag officers have been killed. They've bogged down 90% of the 170,000 forces that. Russia had marshaled on their borders and, you know, have got them into a stalemate at this point, which is only churning through not only Russian resources, Russian people, unfortunately, as well, um, but it's making the the mighty Russian military the laughingstock of the world right now. I mean, you've got memes all over the place of, you know, tractors towing away tanks and sunflowers growing out of soldiers' pockets and stuff. I mean, this is... This is all a huge stain and embarrassment on on Russia. So I think Zelensky is seeing that, you know, the opportunity has changed. The, the, the proverbial tables are turning. Uh, the, the Ukrainian position is becoming stronger by the minute that Russia doesn't take Mariupol, that, that Russia doesn't take Kiev, uh, and that they continue to grind through uh, these logistical challenges and, and, and military advancement challenges that they have. So I think it indicates that you know, there, there's this growing and increased resolve um, that uh, the, the Ukrainians are indeed proud of themselves, and they absolutely should be, and that they're going to take the fight back to the Russians and demand sane and you know reasonable concessions if anything comes out of this. Uh, I don't know what those look like in the future, uh, but I can guarantee it's not going to be Ukraine as a puppet state a la Belarus to Moscow. Can I just jump in for a second and say the obvious, which is what a great living example of asymmetric warfare, which we've been talking about as as doctrine for a couple of decades now. 
And we're seeing it play out probably in somewhat different ways than uh, the theorist expected. Yeah, Carmen, that's a great point. You know, one of the things we've talked about often in asymmetric warfare is this huge cyber attack. And we haven't really seen that. At most, we've seen some nuisance events, uh, uh, DDoS attacks and ransomware attacks, et cetera. But we haven't seen a shutting down of the Ukrainian power grid, a tapping into the Ukrainian telecommunications system and closing that down. So it begins to wonder, were the Russian forces and capabilities really a paper tiger? I don't, I don't know if we can clearly articulate that yet, but indications are pointing toward yes, if I look to my magic eight ball. Or are the people, another explanation, are the people that the talent that Russia depends on for this kind of cyber warfare, not really interested in supporting a, a mean kinetic war? Russians do have a vote at the end of the day, just not quite the one we thought they had, but or, not the one we thought they should have. Yeah. A third option, too, is that all of the money that we've been pouring into defend Ukraine on its cyber capabilities yeah. has been money well spent. Probably the truth is a combination of all of the above, but sure. Um, I sure hope that our taxpayer dollars have been a part of the puzzle here. It, uh, you know, Megan, uh, like we're, we're way off script now, but that's totally fine. Like, I, I want to agree with you, but then you look at what happened uh, nine months ago or whatever in Afghanistan, where clearly our money was not well spent. And, uh, and you have to think, you have to be at least a little skeptical of that as the answer. Although maybe it goes to the motivation of the fighting forces that are involved, as Rob was saying, you know, the Ukrainians are proud of of what they're doing and willing to take these risks. Our Afghan partners, um, you know, a lot of them were willing to take those risks, but certainly not senior leadership. Wes, let me let me <clears throat> jump in defense of the Afghan partners and say, I, I think it's also the commitment of the supporting forces. We are committed far more to supporting Ukraine than we were to our our partners on the ground as we withdrew from Afghanistan, as we retreated from Afghanistan to say, to use the correct doctrinal term, we've got, you know, advisors and people forward in, in Ukraine that are supporting these efforts day in and day out. We pulled that out wholesale and then said, we're, we're gone and left our partners in the lurch in Afghanistan. Good point. Very good point. Megan, let's turn to um, the other kind of big topic here, sanctions, the multilateral sanctions that uh, the Biden administration and our European allies have uh, launched at Russia have been notable, impactful, but there's some loopholes. Probably the biggest loophole is Europe is still purchasing uh, Russian energy exports. What's your overall take on on how well this sanction regime, sanctions regime has been working so far? First of all, caveat that I'm not the sanctions expert. Next, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's it. I, I'm surprised by the level of of um, collaboration, togetherness, cohesiveness that that has been strung together between the U.S. and its partners by the administration. At the same time, though, I'm looking at a picture of a tweet that shows all these companies that are still engaged in Russia. So that being said, uh, I think we figure we need to figure out how to close this loophole that you mentioned to really, really put the screws in. But uh, also on Twitter this morning, we have um, the minister, foreign ministry saying, you know, we're going to survive sanctions. You know, the, the fact that the Russians keep talking about, it, of course, they're talking about it, but it seems to me that they're really beginning to feel the heat. And but some of the sanctions that we're, we've talked about wanting to you know, uh, not have unintended consequences against the people of Russia. Um, so how do we, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that somewhere along the way, the strategic messaging folks are really, really thinking about how do we keep going? Um, 
and not end up kind of with, uh, you know, sort of the um, phrase blowback in terms of kind of the humanitarian issues that in addition to the horrors of Ukraine right now, sort of where what's happening six weeks from now, if this continues in Russia, do we, is it actually having a bite on the people who we want to have a bite on in addition to all the oligarchs? Or are we, are we in a face of, you know, creating some additional crises that we're not quite prepared to manage? In Sun Tzu's Art of War, he talks about providing a golden bridge for your opponent to retreat across uh, as a way to to end the conflict uh, before total do, total destruction might do so. Do we? Does anyone here think that we're at the point where we need to provide a, a golden bridge for Putin, or are we are we still far away from that? Well, I thought after about day four when I at least personally was impressed with what the Ukrainians were doing, and in particular with Zelensky's brilliant, I can only, that's the only word to describe, brilliant, soft, soft power is the wrong phrase to use, psychological uh, uh, rallying of his own people, rallying of the international community and sticking it to the Russians, right? I mean, what he did was has been doing is brilliant. I thought then that, boy, I hope we've got an exit ramp. And I think that some of the things that the U.S. administration and some of the Europeans have been doing, uh, you know, not being as aggressive on some of the aid that they're providing Ukraine, supposedly the German, vaunted German military aid that is being delivered very slowly, is sort of a signal to Putin that, Okay, this can get much worse. Let's see if you're willing to uh, make some more reasonable negotiation points. So far, Putin hasn't taken it. And it's very difficult to come up with a golden bridge for Putin that can in any way salvage his reputation with the Russian people. Uh, that's the tough part, I think. And uh, I think I see enough signs of Russian unhappiness at the at the at the common person level to indicate that I think Putin is seriously wounded. I mean, I don't think he would have done those things like hang out with the flight attendants on a Saturday like that would have that like that was his priority that day. <laughs> right. Or that lame football stadium thing if he didn't feel there was some uh, domestic pressure. So and then but then my last point, do we want a golden bridge that restores some of Putin's domestic political strength? No, I agree. Do we want the golden bridge? I don't think so. But if we don't provide a golden bridge, then what? is next? You know, is this a prolonged conflict? Does it become, you know, Vietnam, Afghanistan, whatever, you know, long-term conflict you want to use as your frame of reference? Uh, I, th I think, though, other indications that I would use to support Carmen's argument that the Golden Bridge is there, uh, your Zelensky has toned down yes. his rhetoric about joining mm -hmm. NATO. Uh, he has not rolled back the, the rhetoric about joining the EU, in fact, signed on a, in a pretty famous ceremony, signed an application to join the EU. Um, but furthering pressure on Russia or on Putin to back off, you hear of Finland and Sweden openly discussing joining NATO. So to me, that's that's the golden bridge. If Putin were to say, well, hold on, if I back out now, will you take those off the table, my next door neighbors who have traditionally been neutral? And if they were to say yes, then that 
to me is an opportunity for him to save face uh, domestically. But I personally, I don't think he's in the right frame of mind to make that decision. Um, I didn't hear about the, the, the stewardess thing. Was he shirtless on a horse? No, <laughs> it was two Saturdays ago where he uh, spends the day or a certain part of the day with Aeroflot flight yeah. attendants. I'm sure they were all the ones that were cleared to serve on presidential planes, right? You know, you have to think through you know, he wasn't getting together with a random group of uh, flight attendants, but it, they, they were all female. It was just it just looked ridiculous. There was, there was some women. there was some talk, Carmen, that the video had been faked. Yeah, and that's that, also uh, possible. That, yes, because he course. was and it appeared that Putin, in part, wanted to show himself sitting right next to someone because yes, he's been so exactly. mocked for that mm-hmm. long table thing where everyone mm-hmm. sits like 20 feet away from him. You want to show, oh, I can sit near normal people. It's no problem. Yes. And then it looked like the video had, had been a green screen or something. Oh, and got sla- I, hadn't, I, mean, I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah. You know, well, you got to read Twitter a little more closely. There's a lot well, of really I mean, clearly I'm not spending Twitter. enough time on it. <laughs> <laughs> Megan, what's what's your sense of this this golden bridge idea? Or should the West be turning the screws on on Putin with sanctions and with weapons for the Ukrainians and, and all the rest of it? Um, my thought is, man or woman, am I glad I'm not still in my old job? <laughs> Um, because, you know, it's, it's at least in my mind, the answers aren't clear, right? There are hard decisions is is one of the um, questions or topics of our, our conversation, right? Um, You know, I'm sort of in the camp of sort of stay the course for another 10 days and see where things lead. Um, Does he become increasingly crazier? Uh, In which case, maybe we really need to think about that golden bridge, Um, just because who knows what's crazy after crazy um and and giving time i think you know to the to to see uh, as robin and carmen and you have pointed out sort of where the where the domestic support which which direction it seems to lead um because i think the two are, are quite uh, uh intertwined so um but i don't i it's hard for me to imagine what the the golden bridge is uh, or is it that we kind of need to encourage, continue to encourage perhaps behind the scenes uh, Ukraine to, to find and go for the EU, but don't go for NATO? Um, so do, you know, do we create the golden bridge or does Ukraine try to create it for himself, for itself, excuse me, um, as opposed to kind of having to have it forced upon them because that doesn't feel very um, legitimate. Rob, what, what are your, um, what's your thought about the possibility of this turning into a frozen conflict? Uh, I, I've seen a lot of experts out there saying that this, uh, you know, the Russians can't win uh, this is going to come to a head relatively quickly. It's not going to turn into a frozen conflict. But I can't help but think that that the the table is set for something to drag on for a really long time here in Ukraine, where Russia is bogged down, uh, but the Ukrainians can't really push them back out of the country. Uh, what's what's you're a lot closer to this kind of stuff. What's your take? I, I think it is a legitimate concern. I mean, you look at the territory that the Russians have achieved and taking, uh, and you could imagine where. That's the lines. That's the the World War One, um, you know, uh, no man's land uh, crops up, and I would hate to see that. I, you know, I would really like for the Ukrainians to be able to push back and take back their territorial integrity. But I would imagine a scenario where the northwestern uh, advances on Kiev and, and the western approaches uh, are drawn back, but there remains a persistent, uh, low grade conflict. Uh, across the Donbass down into uh, Crimea. Uh, that sets Putin up with a land bridge uh, from mainland Russia 
the Crimea. Um, It gives him his victory of protecting, quote, Russian-speaking people, even though half the country speaks Russian or more. Um, And it it gives him an opportunity to to stake a a flag of victory in his mind, I would think. Um, But Ukraine won't settle for that in the long run, and they will continue to um, engage again in in, in low-grade conflict in those areas. Okay, let's uh, let's close out uh, this segment on on Ukraine and, and the Russian invasion by talking about China. Uh, China's uh, basically been Russia's best friend on all of this, while at the same time occasionally saying something that sounds like it doesn't support the invasion of Ukraine. Um, it clearly is a dilemma for Beijing, uh, one where, the, where, in my view, they're, they're choosing Moscow over the rest of the world. Let's, let's, let's go around the, the screen here. Megan, what's, what's your, your take? Is, is China effectively straddling this, or is it clear that they're all in for, for the Russians? To me, it's pretty clear they're all in for the Russians, but... Um... I haven't been spending that much time on that part of Twitter to see what the smart people are saying about it. But um, I, I, I wish we were hearing, I wish it was more prevalent sort of because I, uh, you know, you hear bits and pieces of it, but I, I think we're, it's a conversation that should be more, had more in the open. I don't think I put those words together. Carmen. Uh, well, China is in this uh, enviable position in that they actually have some freedom to make decisions. So both the West is a little bit trapped in how what it can do vis-a-vis Ukraine, Russia, and obviously the Ukrainians and Russians are trapped. But uh, China does act, can actually decide and actually has, you know, a, a, a knob. It can turn it all the way up to 11 or it can keep it down in terms of its support of Russia. So I think that's uh, uh, really interesting. Uh, you know, I... How this all plays, you know, this, it's kind of a long game for China, I think, because they're thinking of Russia, Ukraine as having some relevance to China, Taiwan. And I don't think they're happy that the West gathered so rapidly and quickly around the Ukraine. And I don't think that they particularly want to set themselves up as a, uh, bad guy in the international system. I don't think, you know, they are much more of a status quo power than, for example, the Russians are. So I I expect them to continue this sort of little dance that they're doing, doing just enough, but not doing anything that would provoke a strong Western reaction. That's my guess. Rob? Yeah, I'd have to agree with Carmen. You know, we, we saw the Chinese take some forceful and, and, and direct actions early on, right? They um, Several incursions in Taiwanese airspace, a buildup of um, amphibious ships um, nearby, all in, you know, of course, in typical guise of exercises. Um, but I think they they saw the almost immediate and, and unanimous reaction and are concerned uh, as they see the West or our Asia partners in the, in, in the Asia Pacific region, um, begin to partner up even more closely. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about in previous um, previous episodes about uh, the Quad and how it's developing more and more. Um, you uh, recently announced that there will be a stronger U.S. basing presence in uh, northern Australia. Um, Australia is acting hard against China in the past several months um, directly too. So you can see that uh, there's there's a coalition forming, a stronger coalition forming than has been around. Um, so China would 
could likely perceive um, that there would be an immediate and opposite reaction to anything that they do, Mm -hmm. uh, much like we reacted to Russia. Um, I'd like to thank Carmen for the uh, Spinal Tap reference there and cranking it up to 11. Uh, That's always good to, to, to bring in. I could see the quad turning it up to 11 real quick if China were to do anything at all. Uh, reminds me of the other great line from Spinal Tap. You know, it's a fine line between clever and stupid. And uh, <laughs> thankfully, we never have to worry about that on this podcast. Uh, all right, let's segue from Spinal Tap to our second big topic, which is the uh, cryptocurrency, the crypto EO uh, put out by the Biden administration several days ago. Uh, this, this was a big deal um, regarding the establishment of cryptocurrency standards in the United States. A lot of people think this EO gives legitimacy to Bitcoin and other crypto cryptocurrencies makes their their futures a little more established and may even set up a uh, a situation where where we could have a crypto version of the US dollar itself. So Megan I'll I'll go to you go to you first. What's the what's the significance of this executive order in the grand scheme of things? Long time coming, right? We all kept you, you heard a rumor and then it went away and then you heard a rumor and it went away and the first rumors were oh my god, the US is going to ban cryptocurrencies or at least there was some the rumor machine was certainly putting that out there speculated as to which part of the rumor machine was, 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 um, sewing that, that information operation. Um, at the end of the day though, and I, I do give credit to the administration for getting this thing out the door. A lot of it feels a bit like, please do your jobs and talk to each other. Um, which is important. We do need to have leadership. Um, uh, it, it's especially on something that's new and innovative like this, sort of continuing to allow people to wander in the wilderness and maybe not phone home, um, and not have a coordinated, uh, national strategy is is not a place where I think any of us wants the United States to be. So um, I'm pleased that it is out. I think it's it's kind of you know the three parts, um, three priorities that I kind of took uh, from it are thinking about innovation, security, and inclusivity. Which um, may, if Jamil were here, he'd probably be weak in the knees, maybe or sort of shouting at me. But he's not. I don't even know if he can shout yet. So <laughs> um, he can. Whether his. his, his Regardless of his medical status, yeah. he is always able to shout. That's true. That's true. So I think those are our three good priorities. I think it's, you know, as I say, the the requirement to collaborate, um, thinking about some of the the sort of probably second order in some minds effects of, of the use of these types of currencies and the mining impact and kind of what the, the environmental implications for that are. But the thing that I think is is one of the keys that's so critical here is to think about the future web and where does cryptocurrency, what role does it play in the future web? And are we going to kind of bring forward all of the sins that we have lived in web one and web two? And if we want to call it web three, I don't know, I don't necessarily buy that phrase, but we, I'm pleased to see the administration thinking about that now. We would argue they should have thought about it two years ago too, but um, I see a direct connection between the, the kind of the policy de- uh, deliberation and priorities that are present in this EO and where we think the, you know, trying to maintain or reassert a leadership position in the future of kind of information and communications technologies. Um, because some, I think, are banking on kind of blockchain as a, as a central component of Web3. And obviously, blockchain is a central component of cryptocurrencies. One can't take a... I don't think you can um, uh, unwind them. I think they're very much 
linked. Uh, and so we need to be thoughtful about how we approach it, lest we see ground to some of the countries we were just talking about, Russia and China in particular. Good segue. Rob, what, uh, what are the strategic advantages the U.S. has or could have in the crypto sector? So I will freely admit, definitely not my area of expertise. I associate myself with everything Megan said. I assume you know her expertise is uh, <laughs> spot on. Uh, what I see as a parallel from the past is Bretton Woods, 1944. Um, the the victors and, and Japan got together after World War II, established how um, currency and the banking system and the economic system of the world would function thereafter. Uh, historically, it all fell apart in the 70s when we went away from the gold standard, etc. But I, I use the that analogy to point to the idea that we can exhibit leadership in the crypto space and establish fair and, and fair market value and, and regulations, et cetera, um, that set the standards for everything going forward, uh, for distributed ledger, for cryptocurrency, for Web3. Um, and I will stop there because I've run out of buzzwords. Good string of buzzwords. Carmen, how, how do you think about cryptocurrency from uh, the intelligence analyst perspective? Well, first, I should uh, admit that I own Bitcoin. I bought Bitcoin a long time ago, which is like a really good thing. Uh, I, I bought it because I thought it was a fascinating idea. I've been an anarchist at heart my whole life. And uh, I, I, there it's admitted. And uh, I just thought the idea of being able to have uh, transactions, financial transactions without necessarily needing government structure was really interesting to me, to me. So I didn't get Bitcoin because I was investing, you know, or speculating. I got it because if I'm, if I like it, I shouldn't be a hypocrite. I should like think about owning it as well. Or if I think the idea is intriguing, I would say one of the things that the intelligence community does very badly. In fact, most organizations do badly is that they don't understand the vertical. So the horizontal would be for the intelligence community is all of these other national security issues, right? And so we keep track of all the issues that are on the same plane with us. But we've always done a horrible job of keeping issue with tracks that are totally seemingly with issues that are totally irrelevant to us and yet can really come back to bite us. You know, so the war in Ukraine is being fought in part on TikTok, you know, and probably not something the intelligence community anticipated. So I think that the move to digital currencies, a big buzzword at South by Southwest, DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations, DAOs, uh, Web 3.0 and all of that is going to is going to if it, if it succeeds, is going to create a world where privacy will be very different or your ability to hide will be very different from it is from what it is today. And understanding how economies work and finances flow will will, if it succeeds, be quite different from what is what it is today. My bet would be that 10 to 15 years from now, currency, as in money, will be a big issue in national security, both because of digital currencies and perhaps because of movement away from the dollar as a reserve currency because of what China, Russia might do or not do in Saudi Arabia, accepting yuan as payment for oil and all those other issues. But currency is a big deal. And so intelligence analysts who have typically been horrible economists need to get a lot smarter on it. 
All right. We may have exhausted our, our expertise on crypto, at least for most of us. Let's turn to the final part of the program where we talk about the issue that we're tracking that's not necessarily on the front page. And Megan, let's go to you first. I don't know if it's not on the front page. It sort of is. So right last week, we had the, the cybersecurity and infrastructure. What is it called? The Oops, I lost my page. Cybersecurity Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022 passed with part of the funding bill. And everybody is hewing and crying because my God, critical infrastructure entities, some probably minute subset of them, ultimately, when we get through the rulemaking process, will have to tell the government within 72 hours of an incident. I think this is something that's important. And I'm happy to debate Megan Brown and whoever else about it. Um, But buried in there is also a voluntary opportunity, voluntary reporting requirement. And I will do a slight promo to say this is something that we recommend in the ransomware task force that I was a part of last year. The broader point of it is to say nobody's talking about the voluntary piece of it. So I will be curious to see how many, once we finally figure out the format that we're going to get these reports in, which will also take us until many of us are on our second retirement, um, <laughs> um, what, who, who actually reports and, and what we learn from that opportunity, if anyone. Will it be like AIS, which is still, I think, a field waiting for people to come? Carmen, what are you tracking, presumably, aside from the the daily value of Bitcoin? I am. I just got back uh, yesterday, in fact, from South by Southwest, SXSW, which, by the way, is pronounced South by, SXSW, pronounced South by. And uh, it's a World Idea Festival, first time in two years, obviously, that it had occurred, was quite surprised by the strong international presence there. That I did not think so many people would come back from overseas. Amy Webb, who is a futurist, and it's available on YouTube, her presentation, does a fantastic presentation on future trends. What caught my eye there was the discussion of the really the death of privacy. Uh, you're worried about face recognition? Forget about it because the startups are working on unique signatures in breathing and in heart rate that are going to make facial recognition rather quaint. And what all these things mean for national security organizations, you know, the intelligence organizations where I uh, uh, prospered, I guess, uh, are built on hiding identities. And uh, it struck me that it's, it's going to be impossible in the future. And, uh, and what's interesting is it doesn't seem like any one nation is uh, taking the lead on these issues. It's actually all of these startups that are, you know, even as nations dither away with their national security issues, the startups are creating perhaps an alternate world. They call it the metaverse. Rob. All right, I'm going to kick a dead horse. But as uh, General Henri says, ain't no horse too dead to kick. The border, the border, the border, the border. We are seeing a, an inversion of last year's trends. Last year's trend was a high rate of family units and a low rate of single males. This year, the trend is, is inverted. We're seeing a higher rate of single males, a lower rate of, uh, of family units, but both are increasing year over year. Uh, I want to highlight for you the February numbers from the CBP. Cocaine seizures up by 83%. Methamphetamine seizures up by 97%. Heroin seizures up by 173%. The only good news is fentanyl seizures dropped to, by 21%. If securing our border, not only from individuals, but from drugs and counterfeit goods, is not a national security imperative, uh, we are going to continue to suffer from uh, drug overdoses, from uh, rampant crime in our cities and other areas. Uh, we've got to maintain a secure border that allows those we know are supposed to be coming in to come in freely and openly and, and rapidly, but prevents those we know are not supposed to be coming in 
from staying the heck out. I'll tell you, Rob, that on my flight back from Dallas, the guy in the young man in the middle seat was clearly a single young man immigrant. And he was rifling through some papers. And you know how tight conditions are on planes. Uh, They obviously had to do with an appearance in immigration court that he was about to make. And, uh, you know, you see that all the time on flights from Dallas to Washington, D.C. Yeah. And let me tie it back to the Ukraine issues. Ukraine is moving uh, the evacuees, the the refugees are all moving into the Schengen region. Now you have free movement throughout Europe. And once you get into Europe, you can easily gain access to um, falsified documents and move anywhere in, in the United States or elsewhere to get into the United States. Not saying Ukrainian refugees would do that. I'm saying Russia has now an opportunity to embed stragglers through that system and get people into the country that we don't want here. Okay. Uh, the issue I'm tracking is the case of Paul Recessa Bagina. He was the hero of the movie Hotel Rwanda, which was a true story. Mm-hmm. During the genocide in Rwanda in 1994, he saved over 1,200 people from being killed. Tutsis and Hutus that he protected in this hotel in the capital of Kigali called the Mil Kalin Hotel. Uh, he uh, that was that was 28 years ago. Today he's actually sitting in a prison in Rwanda as a political prisoner. He was kidnapped by the 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 government of President Paul Kagame put on a sham trial and sentenced uh, to 25 years in prison. His health is failing. Uh, he is now much more of a humanitarian case than he even was uh, previous to this. Uh, Rwanda can do itself a lot of good by finding a way to let him out and give him the freedom that he deserves. This was a huge mistake by the Rwandan government, and uh, and it's it 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 does not bode well for for the future of of that country. They really need to take some steps uh, to end this. Uh, situation and there's several others like Paul's, uh, but he's he's in bad shape uh, and he deserves his freedom. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Faultlines is produced by the National Security Institute. If you have been enjoying our discussions on crypto, be sure to join NSI for this upcoming event on March 30th from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern that will feature a panel of experts who will discuss the critical U.S. national security policy opportunities and challenges related to crypto innovation and adoption. The event will be moderated by Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians, and host of the Unchained podcast. Find out more about this event and the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Savannah Algu and Jesse Clauber for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.